You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Anne Velisis is a historian and the author of Discovering the Unknown Landscape, A History of America's Wetlands. Her new book is Kitchen Literacy, How We Lost Knowledge of Where Food Comes From and Why We Need to Get It Back. We're joining her again. Thanks for joining me, Anne. Thank you, Rick. Anne, one of the watershed uh, marks in the history of food was when we got canned foods. And we accept canned foods as a really good thing. They... we give canned foods away at charity drives and, and the holidays, but they weren't always regarded as a, a good thing, were they? No, and this is a really interesting thing. Nowadays, canned foods are so familiar. We just expect to see them in our cabinets when we open our kitchen um, kitchen sh- cabinets up. Um, but back when they were a new product, they were really um, people were very skeptical of them. There was a lot of resistance. And if you think about it, I mean, for perspective, before cans, foods were leafy, green, and earthy. Um, They were odiferous and textured. But with cans, we got into this new situation. Um, What they presented to the shopper was this silver canister, and you really had no way of knowing what was on the inside except for the label on the outside. You couldn't smell the foods. You couldn't touch them. You, You couldn't use your traditional cues like senses or Um, visual cues to understand what was in the can. And this was really something that was quite different. And that was part of the reason that people were resistant. Another thing about that, another reason that people were resistant originally to cans had to do with the fact that when the technology was new, there were really all sorts of problems. People didn't realize um, the processors at the canners that um, that bacteria could still live in cans, even as it got up to a pretty high temperature. They didn't quite have it perfected. And so at times, there would be swelled cans, there would be cans that had bacteria and spoilage, there would be, um, and sometimes even odd, awful things would show up in cans. I write about one story where a woman finds the whole head of a rooster in a can of chicken. And so um, with all of these things, uh, it, it was as if, um, you know, there was a lot of suspicion and skepticism about what you might find in a can. And I think it, for that reason, lots of homemakers avoided them at all costs. At first, they were sort of expensive, too. One of the things that, that I found really interesting was that Congress actually had a, a full-week debate about oleomargarine. <laughs> yeah, the oleomargarine story is an interesting one. And, it, and what happened was um, when the meat business industrialized, um, there was all of a sudden this huge mass of waste and byproducts, including lard and fat from beef. Um, A new product, oleomargarine, actually was invented in France, could turn these byproducts into basically a substitution for butter, and it was much cheaper. And so um, oleomargarine came into production, uh, mass production in, in America in the second part of the 19th century. Now, this was something that really um, had dairy farmers and people who were accustomed to butter riled up and angry and upset because what was happening is the oleomargarine would often show up in market and it would be cheaper than butter. And sometimes it would be packaged in exactly the same way as butter in little firkins, little 
crocs, sometimes later in boxes that were labeled um, uh, things like butter in ca big capital letters, but then I-N-E, butterine, the I-N-E in small letters. Um, and so pretty much it was sold as butter, but it, it wasn't. And so this became a real um, important matter because the dairy farmers felt that they were being undersold and that their business um, that their business was being threatened. But not only that, uh, this idea of what um, people had always thought of as butter, as a natural product, as a customary project product, was being threatened as well. And um, and so in the debates, what I found really interesting was the congressional debates that congressmen used terms such as, they would express this, um, their frustration with this new product, oleomargarine, as being sort of an affront to the senses. One, I remember said, one congressman said, our senses are baffled. We have no means of telling, you know, oleomargarine from butter. Um, and I think that this was something that was a very pivotal thing that happened at, the, at this at this moment, at this historic moment. We went from relying on our senses, knowing that we could trust our senses and a food story to know that it was good and wholesome, to not being able to do that anymore. Um, one of the other crucial parts of the debate is that um, one of the other crucial parts of the debate was that the pro-oleo scientists tried to express um, tried to explain their product as being something that was literally the same thing as butter. I mean, it was made up of fat from cows, basically. And they were saying, well, you know, butter is the same thing. It's milk, fat from cows. Um, it's sort of a reductionist, you know, approach to this. Oh, you can see that, the, the sense of that, though. Yeah. But the congressmen who were troubled by this, you know, they were more attuned to stories. And they knew that the story of margarine really began in abattoirs and in these mass slaughterhouses, um, whereas the story of butter began with a cow in a field. And so there were these two stories, and they knew that the products couldn't be the same because they had these different stories. And I think at that moment of time in history, we were coming to, you know, there was this conflict, there was this new way of seeing the world in these more reductionist terms. Um, chemistry was becoming more popularized. And so this idea that you could break something down to fats um, only, or to, you know, the fats of cows, and that was the same thing. Um, there's this kind of a collision of two ways of seeing the world, and the old way, which was more dependent on stories, was was declining at that point. And, and as our sources of food, where we got our food, moved from the country to the city, one flip that really fascinated me was was dirt. In the country, dirt was good, <laughs> but when it got to the city, dirt was all of a sudden bad. Yeah, well, you know, it was not so much, I think, from the country to the city, but at that particular moment, too, we came to understand germs. I mean, it's hard to believe, but we've really only known about germs for about 100 years, a little bit over 100 years in popular understanding. And so um, people were just not aware of this in terms of foods before, let's say, the turn of the 20th century. But when they did become aware of it, they started to realize that you know, if foods, if um, apples or oranges and fruits were left out on stands at the marketplace, flies would be landing on them, or people's hands would be touching them, or dirt from the streets could get on them. Beforehand, people didn't really seem to worry about that. But once it became evident that actually some diseases could be um, transferred by germs, this, of course, became 
very, um, a very important public health issue. And so we started to see a tremendous emphasis in sanitation and um, hygiene with foods. And so processed foods in this context actually became seen as very um, beneficial because foods were sort of shielded on their path from farm or factory to a person's kitchen in boxes and packages. And one of the thing we also used to think that domesticated was good, and that, then we got this flip that wild was good. What between the different perceptions of food? Uh, one of the interesting themes of your book is just the way the stories have changed back and forth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a really interesting thing, and the idea of the wild really has to do with how we think about ourselves. Um, in relation to the natural world. And so um, if you go back a few centuries, um, when maybe life was a little bit less civilized, when there was more dirt and people were living um, perhaps in a little bit more of a primitive way, um, there was a real sense of yearning for civility. That was part of the culture, Um, more refinement, more civility. That was part of the narrative of society, that we should be progressing towards this. And in that context, uh, the idea of eating wild foods became um, a little bit troubling because there was this vitalist belief that you are what you eat. And if you were eating wild foods, that you could perhaps become a little bit more wild. This was especially the case on the frontier in places where um, the lack of civility was was part of the, the culture. Um, but then as some wild foods started to become um, scarce and as people started to become more anxious about urban life, which was kind of the opposite problem of, be, as, of being um, uncomfortable about living, let's say, on the frontier in an uncivilized place, um, things that were wild became more esteemed again. And so you would find um, on the menus of refined restaurants like Delmonico's, wild foods, you know, wild, um, wild turtles, wild um, birds, different kinds of things that were only found, um, that could only be basically served to people who were epicures and gastronomes. And, and the other part of history I found really interesting, because I always uh, had a vision of this as being something that would happen after a kind of a civilizational apocalypse, was that Italian immigrants would come over here and shoot songbirds. Mm-hmm. And eat them as food. I mean, I I thought, boy, when the grocery stores are gone, we're going to start looking at those sparrows in the backyard and thinking <laughs> dinner. But that's that was that's already happened. Well, it was an interest. I mean, that was another interesting thing that I found, especially in the 19th century and earlier. Is I think I write in one place in my book that you know, um, food was the part of nature that we ate. Um, because people would look out and see lots of different animals and fishes, um, birds, as things that were edible, things that we don't think of anymore. They were things that were wildlife, um, lots of things that were eaten in the 19th century that are not today. In America, of course, we have this conservation ethic that began to rise in the late 19th century because, in fact, bird populations started to plummet and people became concerned about the loss of birds. Um, and so in a conservation frame of mind, people started to realize that just hunting birds for dinner all the time was going to be a problem, that um, that it was going to you know, decimate bird populations. And so we started getting things like hunting laws, hunting seasons to 
protect, to conserve bird populations, which I think is a very good thing. Um, but that conflicted with this tradition of just going out and shooting birds for dinner after after work, which was something that many different immigrant groups, but in particular Italian um, did, Italian immigrants did. And so it was um, a very interesting conflict of cultures at that at that point. Um, uh, our modern food sensibility really begins with uh, Harvey Wiley and his poison squad, and especially his experiments with preservatives, because the, the corporations at first wanted no regulations, and then they wanted, now they do want regulations. Well, it was an interest, that was another, you know, interesting pivot point, which is that as the food system industrialized, at first it was lots of small businesses that were basically trying to supply foods to big cities. Because the technologies were new um, and there was no regulation, there were lots of problems. There was a lot of adulteration. Strange things would show up as products, you know, hayseed, um, pulverized uh, tomatoes and sugar or something would show up as strawberry jam, you know, all sorts of concoctions. And so there was a need, um, it was recognized that there was a need for some sort of regulation. And Harvey Wiley, um, who was the chief of the Bureau of Chemistry, which is a predecessor to the FDA, was really one of the movers and shakers behind the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906, which was really America's first food law. Um, and the big thing that um, that law did is it required certain standards um, for hygiene and in production, and that's that was arguably a really good thing. It also required labeling of foods for the first time, what was in foods, including preservatives, and that was crucial because at that moment when preservatives were sort of new on the scene, people didn't really know what to make of them. They didn't know if they were harmful adulterants added to deceive people into buying rotten foods or if they were useful, legitimate, um, and added legitimate value to products. But some of the other things that this law did is they um, is it by sank by um, by making companies have to put ingredients on their labels. It really did sanction the use of additives of preservatives and colorings as just part of normal part of the American diet. And secondly, it set standards based on really large scale production. And so that um, you know that you can say is what sparked. This, a snowball of industry, food industry consolidation that's continued all through the 20th century. So it was an interesting, an interesting law. It dealt with some problems at the time, but it really had these um, different effects. And in my book in particular, I talk about how it really enabled shoppers to not take responsibility anymore, not have to worry so much about their foods, which was wonderful in one way, but in another way, it, it got us into the habit of not of letting the government make sure our food was safe instead of taking responsibility for it ourselves. And also, it changed the food stories to be so dry as to be uninteresting. If you think of food, the stories behind food as a literary genre, it reduced them to something that nobody in their right mind would want to read. Yeah, eventually these lists of ingredients, of course, become things that we we don't know, we don't um, understand even. I mean, it's it's an, it's an interesting point. One of the movers and shakers of, of the of our food perceptions, more almost than the food industry, are the people who wrote the advertising. Yeah, I found this to be a really a interesting aspect of um, of my story of how we've lost knowledge of where food comes from. 
And it, it turns out that at the precise moment that the food system industrialized and the stories of our foods became unappetizing, that was the moment that the advertising industry came into being. And really, advertising cut its teeth helping to ease Americans into new and palatable ways of knowing about their foods. Um, and they did this in many ways. If you go back and look at the very beginning, early ads um, and promotions, food labels, focused on the traditional kinds of things that people expected to know about their foods, the places and particulars of where foods came from and how they were made. But as that kind of information became less appetizing and less appealing, advertisers started to supply new stories, new ideas, new criteria for what was important in foods. And you can slowly, if you trace this through historic ads, you can see how our attention is diverted from the context of where foods are grown to more personal and sentimental um, contexts um, in, in the home. You know, how is this food going to please my husband or my children? Um, are there going to be too many calories that are going to make me fat? These types of concerns become more paramount, more important. In some of the ways that advertising, um, some of the motifs that advertising used to accomplish this um, was they had to convince people that the new foods that they were promoting were better than the foods that mothers had made in the past. And one of my favorite ads of, um, that accomplishes this, I mean favorite because it's just so zany, is it's an, it's an ad that shows five scientists in white lab coats and test tubes. And um, the copy says, you know, scientists develop new formula, formula number 479, um, and the text explains that they've spent four years and $100,000 to create a new recipe for nothing less than baked beans. And this is something, of course, that mothers have been doing forever. But this new product um, is invested with all of this, um, you know, this prestige of science. And so the mess these particular kinds of ads became ubiquitous. And the message was that these new foods in cans, in boxes, are better than what um, what mothers have made. And so that really helped, I think, cooks, home cooks, to start to feel insecure about what they were doing. And it made it easier for them to um, start accepting these other foods, these new and, new and improved manufactured foods. The other thing you point out is that advertising also enabled uh, manufacturers to sell foods to people who couldn't speak. Yes. <laughs> yeah, later on, it will actually start, I think the first uh, case of this, noted case of this, is probably in the 1920s with Wonder Bread. Um, but advertisers started to realize, especially with the advent of television, that they could start to sell their products to children. Um, and they did this with all sorts of gimmicks, you know, cartoon characters, of course, toys in the cereal boxes. Um, Boy, I used to love those. I did, too. <laughs> I got those dinosaurs. They used to have these great plastic dinosaurs in cereal boxes. And rings and all sorts of... One of the most interesting ones I found, I just have to tell you, is um, there was one cereal box that actually sold a piece of land in the Yukon Territory. So they gave you a little deed in your cereal box for this piece of land somewhere one square inch in the Yukon Territory. <laughs> really? Yes. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, so they were... They realized that they could sell to children and that, that children then would then go with their mothers to the supermarket and would beg their mothers, would um, you know, grovel with their mothers to buy this cereal, to buy these crackers, these cookies. 
And they realized that actually a significant number of the shopping decisions were made by children because mothers, of course, were feeling uncomfortable if their children were carrying on the supermarket and um, if they wanted to please their children. And so you just see this strange turnaround where in the past, mothers had been the ones really making the decisions about what food was going to be coming into the house. Um, But all of a sudden, with the advent of television and advertising specifically directed towards children, um, you know, the choice about what comes into the house becomes an, an argument or becomes a struggle between children and parents and um, and I think probably starts this whole more modern era we have where people are eating lots of different things at the same table or um, anyway. Um, one person, one thing you talk about is home economics and yeah. especially Ellen Richards. Yeah. It was interesting. I talked about the advent of home economics as a part of this um, Home economics, when it first started out, was a really interesting profession. It was one of few professions that were open to women at the time. And so um, any smart young woman who was looking to go to college and study things, I mean, this was one of the fields that was open. Ellen Richards was a chemist. She went to MIT. She was one of, I think, the first woman graduate of MIT. And, you know, she was kind of restricted in what she could study. She had to study things like yeast, rising bread, food adulteration, these kinds of things, just because gender roles were so strong at the time. But she um, just took that limitation and decided to to go with it. And she created um, the discipline of domestic science, which then became home economics. And lots of women got involved in this discipline. And at the time, you know, they were trying to... Um, build home economics into a profession that was really grounded in science um, to begin with. And they were teaching women the basics of chemistry, teaching them to look at foods with microscopes to analyze um, adulterants, what might be in the foods. Um, That was the beginning of it. But through time, um, some of the things that they started to teach had to do with the the very nascent um, science of nutrition, so, and also the new science of bacteriology, of germs. Um, And as they were teaching people about sanitation and about um, some of the early things about nutrition, they started to see that some of the manufactured food products actually um, were, they could see that the manufactured food products could actually be sold as being very hygienic, you know. And so um, they started to slowly promote the manufactured foods more than scientific understanding in home cooking. Um, and so in a strange sort of way, the home economists started to work for manufa- food manufacturing companies. And in their um, articles for women's magazines, they often started to write recipes that requ- that um, suggested that women use manufactured food products. So slowly but surely, they kind of took the reins of expertise and they took the authority um, for what we should be eating. And with that authority, they started to decree that um, manufactured foods were more should be a bigger part of the American diet, and, and part of this too is, is revolves around food security because we live now in, in a world that's just awash at least in America that's awash in food. But this wasn't always the case in World War One. People were worried they might be hungry. Yeah, I think that this is a really interesting point um, to remember, Rick, because one of the because this that was a pivotal I think point in American history after World War One. Europe had been ravaged, and a lot of exports, a lot of America's food went to Europe, and there was food rationing, and um, that was the first victory gardens were happening at that time. The idea was that America had to give up its own food to feed Europe, to let help it survive 
after the ravages of war to help the soldiers win the war. And people didn't like um, this idea that there might not be enough food. This, I think, also happened at a time when a lot of people had moved to cities you know, for the first time. They didn't have the traditional old form of food security, which involved being able to raise your own food on a piece of land. In the city, people were much more vulnerable to these kinds of vicissitudes of marketplace and war. Um, and so the idea of food security was really important. And so in that context, the idea of an industrialized food system, a food system run, governed by scientists instead of farmers, who at the time there was sort of a, a, a sense that, you know, city people were urbane and sophisticated and that farmers in the country might be hicks and not really know what they were talking about. That was kind of part of the, the um, town, city, country culture. Um, you know, the idea of science and, and industry taking over the food system seemed very promising at that particular moment in science. And the idea of things being modern um, was very seductive. Let's talk about the first supermarket named Piggly Wiggly. <laughs> <laughs> I never even, I didn't, when I read that, that was real. I just didn't even believe, I never, I just heard the term, I have heard the, the phrase, but I never thought it was really you a supermarket. Was, you thought it was a joke to I you. thought it was a joke. <laughs> yeah, one of the, one of the first supermarkets in America is a chain called Piggly Wiggly, which started in Memphis, Tennessee, and I believe it was 1917. And um, the thing that supermarkets did um, beyond the markets that preceded them um, was, well, first of all, the thing that supermarket the first chain, let me just say this again, the thing that those first markets did, like Piggly Wiggly, they were really chain stores, and, and they they concentrated buying. They they centralized buying. And so let's say the whole chain would buy all of its apples and oranges from one distributor or from one wholesaler, and then they would be able to distribute it through all their markets. And so that um, created economies of scale. They were able to get a better deal when they bought it wholesale and then sell things more cheaply. So that was a wonderful innovation. The next generation, which were really the first true supermarkets, happened in the 1920s. And what they did was they realized this idea of um, of high volume, low profit, say low margin sales, and so they had bigger areas to sell more foods. They did a lot more advertising of very low priced items, which are called loss leaders. So let's say you know apples five cents or you know something like that that would draw people from afar to come and get that bargain item, and there'd be a few of those. Um, that were sold at cost, but everything else was sold at a, just a little bit higher cost. And so as, as long as anybody bought a few items in the supermarket, the supermarket was profiting as long as enough people were coming and shopping. So it was really seemed like a wonderful thing, especially during the Depression when supermarkets really got going, because people were getting cheap foods, um, and so that was incredibly welcome. The man food manufacturers were selling more foods, which was great because they were um, expanding their um, their scale of operations. And then the supermarket entrepreneurs were, were making a little bit of money on each transaction, which en masse meant that they were making lots of money. So it seemed to please everyone. But at the same time, it really changed the way that we could know our foods because um, all of a sudden there were hundreds of products on supermarket shelves, and then it was thousands, and then it was... 6,000, 8,000. And when you get so many products on supermarket shelves, 
um, there's really no way that you can know those foods anymore, that you can understand them in any meaningful way. You're really picking and choosing between fancy labels or, you know, things that catch your eye here and there. And so the whole, um, the whole process of shopping for food became much more attached to meanings that were attached by advertising and promotion. Why? <clears throat> One of the things that that changed too was the the definition of, of uh, I guess hunter gatherer. <laughs> the hunter gatherer became the housewife. <laughs> and that was Christine Frederick who invented the housewife as we know it, selling Mrs. Consumer. Selling Mrs. Consumer, yeah. Yeah, The in the past, women's role in a household had been primarily productive. It was creating, um, producing food and other, th you know, clothing, candles. Women in the early, through the early 19th century were doing all these things. But in the course of the 19th century, that changed. And by the time Christine Frederick wrote selling Mrs. Consumer in 1929, um, women's role in the economy had really come to be specializing in shopping. That's how Christine Frederick saw it. Um, American women, that was, their, that was their role in the industrialized economy. And so they were supposed to become expert at shopping. And what that meant was learning brand names, learning out how to ferret bargains. Um, and so if you knew how to judge a food by knowing its brand name, which you could learn about by reading women's magazines or looking at ads in newspapers, um, that would be how you could negotiate these, um, how you could negotiate the labyrinth of the supermarket with all of its shelf with thousands of choices. And, and you write that it came to the point where e even the scientists didn't know what was in the food. <laughs> yeah, I talk, one of the... One of the things I found really interesting um, in my book is I found that just at the moment that we kind of got out of the habit of paying attention to our foods, as we got into the habit of relying on ads and um, and these other kinds of perhaps um, pseudo-knowledge of foods, pseudo-information about foods, was at a moment that the foods themselves and food production was changing so much that um, there could be things in our foods that we had no idea were in there. And the thing, the example I use or talk about in my book is pesticides. Um, in the 20th century, pesticides came into very widespread use. The first generation of pesticides were lead arsenate. Um, they came into use really early in the 19th century as people, as farmers were growing more and more crops to supply the large cities. They were, um, they were these big monoculture fields that were more and more vulnerable to pests. So they started using pesticides to protect their crops. Um, at the time, people weren't really concerned about um, the health hazards of these pesticides, even though, um, well, at first, people were concerned that putting something like lead and arsenic on food could be problematic. But because farmers were so desperate, and because, of course, lead and arsenic are the kinds of toxins that um, don't make anybody acutely ill, they have long-term chronic effects, people were not concerned about the health effects for them. And so they were used quite widely for decades and decades. By the 1930s, people became more aware that there really were important health problems associated with um, lead and arsenic that was, going, that was on everybody's vegetables and fruits. Um, and at just that time, DDT came onto the picture, and a whole new generation of, 
organochlorine pesticides that came into being with World War II. Um, those pesticides were used first during the war as a way to protect soldiers from deadly insect-borne diseases. But then after the war, there were these stockpiles of it left in um and the manufacturers realized it would be great to sell it for civilian use. And so right after the war, it just went right into um, use on farms. And food, for food manufacturers, used it to fumigate the insides of cracker and cereal boxes. And homemakers were encouraged to spray it in their homes to just get rid of all insects. And so people had a sense that all of this was very safe. But behind the scenes, um, government researchers weren't so sure. They were worried that some of these substances could, in fact, have long-term health effects. But at the time, there was no regulatory um, framework with which to restrict pesticide use. Um, that would come later. And so there's this moment um, in which I think the government researchers and scientists were very bewildered about what to do, because here was the substance in widespread use. There was no way to control it. Rather than alarm people, they kind of treated it as a public relations problem. They didn't want, they figured it would be better for no one to know about it. They kind of hoped secretly that something better would come along. And so we went from, you know, if you think about the whole history of this, we went from knowing our foods, going, we went from being able to know our foods in a firsthand sensual sort of way, um, knowing our foods with um, senses and common sense, to having to rely on a whole legion of experts from toxicologists to entomologists to risk analysts. And and so, I mean, it was a tremendous transformation that occurred. And, and, you, and so there's no wonder that people are confused and bewildered about what to eat and what's in our foods. Now, there's something you mentioned that I, I was, I have to admit, I was shocked to, to know that Betty, there was no Betty Crocker. Are you kidding? There's no Betty Crocker? There was no Betty Crocker, yeah. I know, it's kind of a fascinating um, truth that the foremost authority um, about cooking was a fictional woman, you know, that was created entirely by industry. That was the foremost authority of cooking in the 20th century. Um, and Betty Crocker was created by General Mills to sell their convenience products. Um, at the time, um, again, it gets back to something I was talking about earlier, that convenience, people were skeptical of convenience products. And so they needed to be kind of led into them um, by a motherly woman who would offer her um, advice and her, um, her, gosh, I'm unable to come up with a word here, by a motherly woman who could bestow the products of her wisdom. Yes, could encourage a motherly woman who could encourage them to use these products with confidence. Um, and so in particular, Betty Crocker became associated with her cake mixes. Um, at the time, baking cakes was regarded as a um, wonderful but somewhat difficult thing for a home cook to do, um, baking cakes from scratch. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, it still is. But. Yeah. Well, it's not It's not an easy thing to do. It requires attention. It requires lots of different ingredients. Um, and so um, at the time, young women who were coming of age and maybe didn't have mothers living nearby because it was sort of the beginning of um, a more mobile time in America after World War II, people were leaving their homes and going to live in different states and, and such. Um, women were, at the time... Um, maybe not as familiar with baking cakes. And so um, Betty Crocker, um, her authority, her um, was used to help make people feel better about using products like boxed cake mixes.
But we've had since then some some what you call kitchen counter trends, uh, and I think uh, Michael Pollan calls it the counter cuisine, which I think <laughs> is an interesting uh, term. Yeah, yeah, counter cuisine and kitchen counter trends. Yeah, it's the same thing. It's um, what happened was, lo and behold, about kind of the late 1950s and early 1960s, um, some people started to question what was happening. Started to question the status quo. You know, we'd been We'd been told that modern, new and improved modern convenience foods were going to be great and wonderful. But in reality, you know, some of the foods just didn't taste as good. And so some epicures started to question some of these products like, you know, TV dinners or vegetables that were bred for mechanical harvest that were hard as rocks or all ripened at once and were never ripe, actually. Um, At the same time... um, you know, there were more and more additives added to foods after World War II, kind of in the same way that um, there was this huge, um, there was this skyrocketing use of pesticides after World War II. There was a skyrocketing um, of additional additives as well. And a new generation of consumer advocates started to question all these additives that were being um, put into foods. Um, At the same time, some of the environmental consequences of food production were coming to be more known. Um, You know, pollution from larger factory farms was becoming known. Um, Another thing that was happening at the time was um, hormones being added to meats. People were uncomfortable with that and questioning that. Um, At the same time, also people were recognizing that perhaps, um, at the same time people were recognizing that the conditions of farm workers' lives were really awful um, in America. And so there were all these questions that started to be raised in the 60s and early 70s um, about this modern food system that was emerging. And at that time, some people took these problems to heart very personally and very seriously, and they went back to the land to grow and raise their own pesticide-free and additive-free food. Um, thousands of young people went back to the land and started farms. Um, some of them had no idea what they were doing. Um, some, um, but some persisted and learned and um, figured out how to do organic farming. Some of these people went on to create networks to, to supply food co- cooperatives in college towns and small cities with fresh um, pesticide-free foods. Some of those people became activists and entrepreneurs who pushed for an organic food certification system. And some went on to become entrepreneurs in what has now, of course, become this huge organic foods industry in America in the 1990s. Um, And what they've essentially created is a whole alternative food system replete with supermarkets and big industrial farms in California that supply pesticide-free foods to America. With some of the same problems uh, as the recent problems with spinach point out to us. I mean, industrial scale um, agriculture is problematic, even if it's organic. That's right. Yeah, exactly. And um, and so, you know, there's been a lot of discussion in the past few years about this problem. You know, what's happening to organic? Because, of course, those people who started... Um, the organic foods movement in the 70s and 80s had envisioned that it would always stay smaller scale. But of course, as many Americans, uh, more and more people are concerned about how their foods are grown, wanting to know that their foods are grown in ways that don't harm the environment and that are healthy. Um, As more people want organic foods, um, a 
of course, to meet demand, or all sorts of farms have tried to shift to organic methods, and they um, and the meaning of organic has been watered down in a regulatory sense. I think it's important to say, though, that organic still really does have some concrete meaning. You know, organic does mean that people are not using pesticides to grow their foods, and and organic does mean that farms tend to be more careful um, in their stewardship of soil and water. But this is a gray area, and, and people are constantly trying to water down the organic standards, and that's why people who are concerned about this have to be very vigilant. Uh, I think one thing that you talk about, and, and one way for us to be vigilant, is to, to keep things local. You, farmers markets, CSA. What, what, what is a CSA cooperative? A CSA, CSA stands for Community Supported Agriculture, and this may be one of the most wonderful ways that you can get your food and know it's grown well and know it's um, local. And so therefore, not only does it support um, your local economy, but it's something you can you can know the person who grew it firsthand. The food is fresher and therefore more nutritious and delicious. Um, the way CSAs work is you buy a share of the farm. You subscribe to a share of the farm ahead of time. And then every summer or every week through the growing season, you get a box full of fresh vegetables, sometimes honey, sometimes cheese, fresh foods from the farm each week. And so as a result, you're eating locally, um, you're eating seasonally, and it's a wonderful adventure because you're you're getting this fresh, wonderful food. And, and you can actually, as you say, talk to the people who grow your food. I, I know our local CSA gives you a phone number. You can call up the farmers and talk to them and get back to where we were to know the story behind your food. Right. And a lot of CSAs also have these wonderful newsletters that tell you what's happening on the farm. Sometimes they offer work days where people can actually go out and, and do some of the work and participate. And um, I think what it is, it's incredibly meaningful p- for people to see how their food is raised, to know where it comes from. It really restores and reinstills a sense of respect um, for eaters, for consumers of food, um, to, kn- to have a respect for farmers who grow the food. That's a wonderful and important thing to have because once you see how much goes into raising your food, knowing how much um, knowledge it takes and expertise it takes, you really appreciate it so much more. Um, not to mention there's just this wonderful variety of foods that you probably will have not seen in supermarkets that you often get in a CSA box. We've been speaking with Ann Velisis. Her new book is Kitchen Literacy. Thank you for joining me, Ann. Thank you, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.